online they call me the medical mythbuster, um, so I kind of like that. But it's also been cool because I I get to I actually work a lot with brands. So I've worked with Neutrogena and Google and Listerine. I'm working with Gillette, like all these different places, kind of talking about things from a unique angle of like equity, but also business. And so. Um, I, I have like a talent man- management agency. I have a speaking agency. It's kind of been this like thing that's grown and become crazy, <laughs> but I love it. It's it's the new world, I guess. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom, and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. In this episode, we're turning our attention to a couple of talented young men from two very different circumstances, each at the beginning of their careers in two very different industries. What they have in common is that they're both recipients of Nordstrom Scholarships. Nordstrom has created and supported several scholarship programs over the years. Some are community-based, like our newly added Blake Nordstrom Scholarship in 2022, which helps to cover basic needs, including housing and food for highly underserved college students in the Seattle area. Others that more directly focus on increasing equity and inclusion in the fashion industry, like our contributions to the Virgil Abloh Scholarship through our partnership with the Fashion Scholarship Fund. First, you'll hear from current medical student at Washington State University, dubbed the medical mythbuster by his 1 million plus followers on social media, Joel Burvell. Growing up, I was often—I was always the only black student in my class, always. <laughs> but it really made me better kind of understand my own, how people saw me, my own identity. And it really made me have to be sure of what my identity was. After that, you'll hear my conversation with two-time Nordstrom Maid Scholar and founder of the brand Hakari Noyami, Jakari Whitaker. I think the key lining um, my design philosophy is the aspect of a defiance against societal norms and expectations, creating a new world, not following suit. Joel and Jakari represent only a couple of examples of our efforts to support talented and deserving young people, but their stories prove just how important these investments are. We're extremely proud to have played even a small part in helping them to achieve their goals, and we're happy to use the Nordy Pod to give them a platform to speak about the work that they're doing. So today, um, I have to give a little backstory here how this this one came to be. But um, I was asked to participate at a conference for the Washington State Health Association. Uh, I was invited by Dr. Jeff Sparing, who's been on the podcast before, who's at Seattle Children's Hospital, asked me to come speak to the group, which I was happy to do. But at a certain point, somebody talked about, oh, my kid worked at Nordstrom or I've worked at Nordstrom. And, and everyone had kind of a Nordstrom story. I may have asked at some point, how many people in this room have actually worked at Nordstrom? And lo and behold, there's a bunch of people. And someone in the back raises their hand. I'm like, well, that's all interesting. And he was the guy that was actually the speaker after me. So I've got Joel Burvell here on our podcast. And we're going to learn all about him. Joel, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so I'm you. I got 
you know, you a little bit of background about you written out. And it feels like if I actually read all of this, it would take about 15 minutes. So I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to try to get to the highlights because this is an extremely accomplished young person. All right. So <laughs> Joel graduated from Yale University in 2017. He's actually originally from the Seattle area, earns a degree in molecular cellular developmental biology. I don't know anyone <laughs> in the history of my life that's done that. That sounds very impressive. And then after graduating, completed a master's in medical science at Boston University and spent a year working as a clinical research assistant at Providence Hospital here in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And then Joel goes to Washington State University to get your doctor degree, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And um, while there, you were on the medical student council as the president. You're the co-founder and president of a chapter of the Student National Medical Association. You're the founder and director of Coog Health Academic Mentoring Program. Online, Joel is better known as the medical mythbuster, and we were talking about this a little bit earlier. It has quite a few followers and hits on TikTok and Instagram. Currently, Joel is a participant in the White House Office of Public Engagement's Health Fair Leaders and Social Media Roundtable on the Council for Responsible Social Media, has served as the American Medical Association's Medical Student Digital Fellow on the Atlantic's Health Equity Advisory Board and working with the World Health Organization's digital communications team to combat the spread of misinformation on social media about COVID-19. In 2021, Joel was named by TikTok as a voice of change as one of the top 10 change makers on their inaugural Discover list. <laughs> I mean, look at this stuff goes on and on. It is <laughs> Super impressive. Yes. Yeah, so when you start reading that bio, now I'm also just like, ooh, I do a lot of No, guess. it's impressive. <laughs> and how old are you? I'm 28. Okay. So then we also found out that you were the recipient of a scholarship from Nordstrom. Over the years, I don't know, we've probably given out hundreds of scholarships to underprivileged, deserving young people. There's been a diversity bent to that for sure. Mm -hmm. And you won this in 2012. You're one of a handful of people that won in the Seattle area where you got a $10,000 scholarship mm -hmm. from Nordstrom. So talk about that. Yeah. So when I was in 2012, I was a junior inside high school, but was preparing to think about college. And I was applying to colleges all over the United States. Yale was one of the places I was looking at. But I was looking at the price tag on how expensive schools were. My parents were immigrants, so we didn't grow up with a, with a lot. Um, they were constantly working multiple jobs for me, my siblings, to be able to have a better life. And so scholarships was something I learned about as a freshman in high school, and I was looking at them a lot. When I found about the Nordstrom scholarship as a junior, I was like, this is awesome. $10,000 for students that are passionate about leadership, that have good grades, that are caring about the world. And so I applied for it. And Nordstrom Scholarship definitely has the coolest way that they surprise you with the with winning the award. I was in my leadership class, I remember, sitting there with my other classmates. They walk in and say, we have an announcement to make. And they is some people from Nordstrom? Some people from Nordstrom. Okay. Ellen Green. Oh, Ellen, she's great. Yeah, yeah she's wonderful. Um, and I think it was Travis, I think it was his name. Actually, I, I've got a copy of the article. Oh, I that. love that. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, keep going. Yeah. So they jumped into the classroom, said, we have an announcement to make. There's a student in here we want to re reward for his leadership, for his grades, um, and give him a, a $10,000 scholarship. And they walk in with this huge check. 
um, <laughs> that said ten thousand dollars. It had my name on it. I still have the check in my bedroom. You do. When I walked, I looked at it actually as, as awesome. I was coming here. But they gave me the check, and it was just this huge moment for me because one, it validated a lot of the things I've been doing. Um, showed me that. I deserve to go to college, even if I didn't have the financial means to get there, I could figure out a way. And the Nordstrom scholarship was the first scholarship that I got um, on this hunt for scholarships over the years after that. But even beyond that, I remember over the summer between my uh, senior year of high school and my freshman year of college, I didn't have any plans. And so I think I reached out to Ellen and said, hey, is there any opportunities at the Nordstrom corporate offices to just like shadow or hang out with you guys? Like you, it seems like an amazing company. And Ellen was like, you know, why don't we just give you a job? And so she connected me to the Alderwood Mall. That sounds like that happens all the time. People, I'd like to work just kind of following people around like, yeah, we, how about selling something in one of our <laughs> stores? So that's what I'm with you. I yeah. See. And so I got a job at Nordstrom. It was my first real, real job. Um, I had internships before, but never like a real job. So was it the Alderwood Mall? Is that it was the Alderwood Mall location. I was in the rail department. All um, right. Yeah. And so you sold, you sold young men's clothing. Exactly. And I feel like if I wasn't in medicine, I'd be in business. And so this was so fascinating for me. One, my fashion game definitely got up. <laughs> I was like looking around at the clothes. I was like, wow, what have I been wearing for the past few years? I came into uh, my freshman year of college, the most stylish kid. So I can definitely say that. Two, I think one of the things they talked about a lot was like building a brand and building a business and like treating each of your customers as like their own, as, as your own customer, right? right? As if you were an individual business. And I really took that to heart. Better understanding just like, how am I interacting with people? How do I maintain this connection? I loved talking to people. And in a way, working at Nordstrom is not unlike being a physician in that you're seeing people, you're finding their needs, um, you're, you're problem solving for what they need. Yeah, and you then gotta do some listening. You gotta, you gotta, some, you gotta have, ask good questions, absolutely. get to the heart of it. And then you form that connection and hopefully that connection goes over time. It really was this huge opportunity as a, as a high school, basically as a high, new high school graduate to feel what it was like to live in the real world and feel like I was owning my own business away. So, so I loved you it. just work for the summer then? Just for the summer. So Joel, talk a little bit about what it was like growing up. I mean, you, you said your parents were immigrants, what have you, mm -hmm. and here you were in the Seattle area. So what was life like for you as a young person? You know, I feel like I'm really fortunate I've grown up in this area. I'm in Muckleteo, Washington. I had a lot of opportunities growing up. But just to give you a little bit of my backstory, um, both my parents are from Ghana, West Africa. They were born there, immigrated first to Canada, and then here to Seattle, Washington area. Um, so I call myself a third culture kid. Okay. And so it's this blend of different places where I feel like just growing up, I've always looked at things in different ways, looked at just situations from a cultural lens, but also from a lens of understanding that everyone approaches things based on their just based on their history of what's happened to them in the past. I remember while my parents were at work, my grandma was the main person taking care of us. And so I learned a lot about what selflessness and respect look like from her. Um, and she's actually part of the reason why I went into the medical field. When I was in seventh grade, she ended up going back to Ghana. She actually didn't speak any English. She was literally only here to take care of my siblings and I. And she actually, I hate to say this, but she did not like the United States. She wanted to go back oh. to Ghana as quickly as possible. Um, but learned a lot from her just about respect and about sacrifice. I mean, she came here for us. And when she went back to Ghana when I was a seventh grader, she actually ended up passing away within one year from malaria. And I think that was my first experience thinking about like health disparities, like global health disparities, albeit, but how someone that you can love can be just taken away by a healthcare system so quickly. Yeah, talk about it a little bit, because I read, I read that about that experience with her and what happened. I think it was interesting. I mean, I don't forget. I remember just hearing my mom on the phone and just like her breaking down. It was, I think it was like midnight for us. And she'd gone to a hospital in Ghana and they told her that she had to bring her own tubing, her own materials. 
And wait a minute. So she shows up there, and not only is she she's going to get the care, but you have to bring your own. You have to bring your own items. They didn't have it there. She was in the kind of this rural. How would village she even area. know what to bring? Exactly, and that that's part of the problem is that many of these hospitals that are in the kind of more rural areas don't have the equipment that's necessary, and so she got there. They didn't have what she needed, and so she passed away from literally just like delays in care from getting the necessary inf- uh, equipment that she needed. Had she been here, that would have in a heartbeat, been there. But I remember hearing about that, and we'll get into this, but I I have a nonprofit that my siblings and I started when we were in middle school. So another thing that wasn't on the list. (laughs) That that was not on the dossier (laughs) of information I have here, but okay, keep going. But it's called Hugs for Ghana. We raise school supplies, medical supplies, and sports equipment from high schools and middle schoolers here in the United States to continue what she used to do, which was go to our bedrooms. She used to steal these stuffed animals (laughs) from my siblings and I's bedroom take them to Ghana and then give them to kids in the hospitals. So when we when she passed away, we wanted to do something to honor her. And so we decided to ask our community around us to um, see if they donate any stuffed animals that we could take to Ghana. We were expecting to get maybe a hundred stuffed animals from the community of Makotio. Uh, I remember we ended up getting 5,000. <laughs> and so we ended up shipping all these items to Ghana. We went there and hand delivered it to kids um, that were just- And in. you're just a kid yourself. Yeah, I was. And there's a picture of me and my siblings. I always look back at it because I'm like, wow, I was tiny. <laughs> but it was like my sister. I have an older sister, me, and then my younger brother. And how old were you when this happened? I was 12 at the time. You, so you already had a nonprofit going yeah. when you were 12. When I was 12, yeah. So that's been going on for 16 years. And we still take students back to Ghana every every few years. We're planning a trip next year. The last trip we took. So this organization is still going? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We have chapters all over the United States, here in Virginia, in New York. And students essentially create their own executive boards where they're, they have a president, vice president, a social media manager. They put on local events. So they will volunteer at local middle schools. They organize supply drives, they organize fundraisers. And then um, once every few years, we take the students to Ghana or other countries. We've actually been to Sierra Leone, Kenya, and Uganda as well, where um, they're going to partner institutions, specifically orphanages, schools, and then hospitals, where they're hand delivering these items and also kind of forming uh, connections with kids. So I'm just curious, um, from what I know of this area, Mukilteo, Mm Not a lot of African-Americans no, probably. less there. than 1%. So how did that inform what you've become oh, yeah. and, and the, from lessons learned or whatever life lessons that happened from being, you know, really a minority for sure? Yeah, I think about that a lot. Growing up, I was often, I, I was always the only black student in my class, always. <laughs> in my AP class, I was the only black student. I remember when I was running for student body president in eighth grade, people called me Obama because <laughs> I was the only black kid, even though I looked nothing like Obama. But it really made yeah. me better kind of understand my own, how people saw me, my own identity. And it really made me have to be sure of what my identity was. I remember in high school, people would often call me an Oreo. What that meant was that I was black on the outside, but I acted white on the inside. So what does that mean when you acted white? I mean, you exactly. know, you're, you're being raised in an African-American household. Yep. So why would someone say that, do you and think? I, would, I started asking those questions, like, what do you mean by that? And I, they'd start saying things like, oh, well, you're in leadership, you're in all AP classes, you get all A's. And I'd say, are you saying that someone that's black can't say, do that? And they'd be like, no, no, that's not what I meant. And they'd, I'd be like, okay, what did you mean? <laughs> and so I learned really early on. A lesson on, in stereotypes. I've, exactly. Yeah. I learned early on to ask the three whys. Like the more you ask whys to someone, the more they realize, oh, I guess what I'm saying there means something different than what I intended. And that was a huge lesson for me. Because even now in medicine, I'm asking those three whys, right? Why do we do it this way? Well, we do it this way, this way because of maybe this study. Why did we use that study? Well, this study said this. 
why did they come to that conclusion? You know, and really rooting out root issues of, of different things. So I think growing up here really made me better understand my identity, but better understand how to ask why of people that may had may have stereotypes or like believe something of just who I was as a person. And aware of racial bias, obviously, uh, oh, as a as a thing. Very early on. Yeah, I think really growing up here made me um, feel comfortable calling things out. And I also feel lucky because I think I speak a language that maybe a lot of people that grew up in predominantly black communities aren't able to. I'm able to like talk about things in a way and present them in a way that is, I like to say like non-threatening in a way that causes everyone to question the beliefs that we have as opposed to causing other people to feel like they are the cause of those problems. Right. And I think even now, um, you'd mentioned a little bit about my social media, but just to give you a little bit more insight there, um, on TikTok and Instagram, I started creating videos about health equity, things I basically wasn't learning in medical school. So when did you start that? 2020, during the pandemic. Okay, so you at this point, you'd already graduated from Yale. Yep, so I'd graduated from Yale, and my I was just kind of finished my first year of medical school, okay. was starting my second year, and then suddenly classes all went virtual. (laughs) And for me, the way it started was at my school, myself and one other student were the first two African-American students in our school. And so I came in being like, okay, there's obviously gonna be a lot of opportunities here to build something more than what's already been built for black students specifically. And to give you context in the United States, less than 5% of all physicians are black. And so there's a need for more more diversity. There's a lot of reasons why, but I came in thinking, how can we expand and offer more diversity? So that's why I started a student national medical association, why I served as my school student body president. But in my classes, I started realizing that there was ways that talking about specifically black individuals wasn't included in medicine. It was especially seen in things like dermatology, where all the skin conditions we looked at were on lighter skin tones, almost never on darker skin tones. And I remember there's this one moment in my class where we were talking about this um, skin, a condition that's called cyanosis. It's essentially when your skin turns blue. And I kept looking at myself and being like, I'm not really going to turn blue. <laughs> and I turned to my friend, Brooke, who was sitting next to me. I said, should I ask the professor, like, how do you find cyanosis in a black patient? And she's like, I mean, I don't know. Like, yeah. I'm guessing you raised your hand. And so I raised my yeah, hand. Okay. And I asked him that question and he had a great answer. He said, you can look at your mucous membranes. You can look at the nail beds, looking at the eyes um, for dehydration, all these other things. But I kept, I walked out of there and I asked myself, like, if I hadn't asked that question in that moment, would anyone have ever raised their hand and asked that question? And it made me realize that there's a lot of ways that medicine does that, where people that have dark skin like me aren't included. Uh, and there's this device called a pulse oximeter. I'm familiar with that. Yeah. So as you know, when it gets below a certain point, that yeah. means your oxygen levels are too low. Like right. it's dangerous and a dangerous level. Well, I remember I was on um, Instagram one day just scrolling through and I saw this research study that someone had posted and essentially had said that the pulse oximeters don't work as well in darker skin tones. What it does. Meaning it just, it's just an inaccurate reading or does it happen to be low or higher? Yeah. So it can actually read higher. Oh. And the reason why. So like giving a false positive? Exactly. A false uh. positive. The reason why is the pulse oximeter, how it works is it has red light that comes out of it. And it basically is looking at how much oxygen is bound to your red blood cells. But in darker patients, melanin also absorbs red light. And so when it's absorbing a lot of light, it falsely elevates that oxygen saturation, making it look normal when it might not be. And I remember reading this and I had never heard anything about it in my pulmonology class. And I said, what in the world? Like, this is pretty big. I feel like all, all students should know. So if, if there's a false positive, if that alarm's not going off, yeah. we know to look at the patient and say, let's look at a different way. Let's take an ABG, an arterial blood gas, and maybe that's more accurate. And so I made a video on TikTok. So you said, 
I'm going to take this upon myself. I'm going to put a video on TikTok about yeah. this. And I started my video out by saying, what does racial bias in medicine look like? And I basically went through and explained exactly what I told you in 30 seconds. Posted it. Thought nothing of it. Within 24 hours, that video had over half a million views. How do you think that that caught a viral yeah. wave like that? I think it was at a moment during the COVID pandemic where the FDA is telling everyone, go out and buy this pulse oximeter. Like you can use it at home. Yeah. So if you had COVID, that would be something you'd do. Exactly. Right. During COVID, like having hypoxemia, having those low oxygen levels, that's one thing we look at because if you get too low, it's really dangerous. And that's at the point where you need to go to the ED, you need maybe maybe in the, in the ICU, the intensive care unit. But then realizing that doesn't necessarily work equally for black patients at a time when a lot of news stations were talking about how black populations were disproportionately impacted by COVID, it just like was this kind of a, another signal of like, whoa, what's happening here? Why have we not been hearing about this? And I remember looking at the comments and there was doctors in the comments saying, I use this every day and I had no idea that it could be reading inaccurately. Nurses saying it. And then patients saying, I wonder if this is what happened to my loved one. We went to the hospital, wow. we got this pulse oximeter, they told us it was normal, they told us to go home. Subsequent studies later on found that black patients were more likely to be turned away from the ED because their oxygen levels read normally by the pulse oximeter. Right there in the in the emergency right room. Right there in the emergency room. And yeah. I'm on my emergency department rotation right now. So I can even I like I know even myself, if yeah. I didn't know this knowledge and I saw a patient come in, they were if they were saying, Hey, I'm short of breath, but I looked at their oxygen levels and I said, Hey, well, it's reading normally, you're fine. Right. That happens all the time. Ah. Go home, you're fine, you'll come back later. And unfortunately, a lot of people never came back. And so I think that's why it caught such a storm. And it became my first video in what's called my racial bias in medicine series, where I try and pick out these different things in medicine that exist that a lot of people don't realize impacts different populations in different ways because we've just never done the research on it or the research has never been exposed in a way that gets people talking about it. So how did it make you feel when it went from something that was kind of a one-to-one -one and mm -hmm. really about you to something one-to-many yeah. that you were able to do something that had an impact Broadly, how'd that make you feel? I was thrilled to see that like something like TikTok, that's I think a lot of us think about, about it as a dancing app or like an <laughs> app that people are just there yes. for entertainment, could be life-saving, could be giving information that would change how someone approaches their own care or sees their own health. Yeah, that's that's really amazing. So what, what kind of opportunities did that or doors did that open up for you? I mean, once this thing's out there, did you start getting calls from people? Because I mean, again, when you look at your bio and you got mm -hmm. a web page and everything, there's all kinds of articles and videos and stuff. Yep. Was it really was that the catalyst for that? That all of a sudden you became discovered in some way? That was one of the first ones. I don't think it was actually till the following year. I had a whole series of videos about racial bias. The pulse oximeter was the first one. Yep. But I also talked about race-based medicine, which I, I think I joined that conversation at the right time because it started changing. So I'll give one example there. Um, there's this equation that used to exist called the GFR equation, glomerular filtration rate. It essentially measures how well our kidneys work. If you have a high GFR number, that means your kidneys work well. If you have a low GFR number, your kidneys aren't working as well. But for decades, there'd been a, a multiplier added onto the GFR equation for black patients and only for black patients. It essentially said, if you are black, multiply the GFR number by 1.21, 1 1 something like that. And I remember learning about this and thinking, why in the world does this exist? I made a video about it, talking about how it's a, it could have essentially be overestimating GFR in black patients mean that black patients would be less likely to get kidney transplants, less likely to get Well, why was with... that calculation there? Yeah, good, like uh, the question I asked, when I dug into the research, I found out it's because they made an assumption that all black patients had higher muscle mass. 
when you have higher muscle mass, you have more of a muscle breakdown protein called creatinine. And creatinine was one of those things that was in the equation to use. And so they added a multiplier onto that, uh, the equation just for black patients. Instead of looking at muscle mass, right, they decided to just say all, exactly, right. decided to say all black patients. And so wow. I remember I made that video, another one that went viral. People were like, whoa, this is crazy. I was turned away from my kidney transplant, all this kind of stuff. Fast forward to 2021 and the National Kidney Institute actually put together a task force to look at this. Fast forward another year to 2022, they actually created a new equation that doesn't use race anymore. And the task force suggested taking out the use of race and instead replacing it with um, a different protein called cystatin C, which is more accurate, isn't based on race at all. Um, and fast forward to this year, they actually have now required hospitals to make adjustments to patients. Essentially, patients that had this GFR equation used, if it affected their kidney transplant time, they have to be retroactively kind of re-looked at. And I actually got a, a DM, a, a direct message in my inbox on Instagram the other day from a patient that said they'd been moved up five years on the kidney transplant list because this GFR equation had taken out race now and that they'd found out about it from my video that they watched. That's so amazing. another example of kind of the racial biases that exist. But I think as I start talking about more of these things that existed, and I, unfortunately I can give many more examples, but as I start talking about these things, I think people start taking attention or people that were doing the research on it were saying, this is awesome. Can you highlight this study I'm doing? Or can you talk about this? I think the first big opportunity I got was I actually got to speak at the FDA about the pulse oximeter and how my video kind of like led again to this resurgence of looking at the pulse oximeter. And then um, I got reached out to by the White House with the White House off of a public engagement and then ended up being invited to speak at South by Southwest. So I was a keynote at South by Southwest and that became really big too. Spoke at VidCon and just kind of went on this kind of speaking tour of different places. So when do you have time to actually do your schoolwork? Yeah, I mean, you've, got, you've got a lot going on here. Yeah, I think what was really fortunate for me was this, I started when I was in my second year of medical school. So I was still, it was during COVID too. COVID gave me a lot of time. <laughs> Oh. where all our classes were online, it was virtual. So after I'd, I'd have classes from like 8 a.m. until 1 p.m., and I'd be doing research and making videos and thinking about the next topic I wanted to talk about. Or people would be sending me things saying, can you break this down in a way that people would understand? And then when I got to my third year, it became a lot more difficult because that's when you're in the hospitals. You're doing rounds. You're doing rounds, exactly. Yeah. So that was crazy because I would wake up at like 4 a.m. before my rounds at 6 a.m. I'd make my video beforehand, go to my rounds, be in the hospital, and then around like five, six, I'd get home and maybe like do some research, go to bed. And I lived with two roommates. They were both med students and they would always joke that they're like, Joelle, you are crazy. Like we don't see you anymore. So do you see your future more in actually how you would practice medicine or how you might teach or lead in other ways? Yeah. Uh, I know this <laughs> sounds maybe crazy, but I want to do it all. So I'd love to still Well, you've practice. done it so far. So I yeah, you're doing great. Keep Thank going. You. That's all good. <laughs> um, so my goal is to be a surgeon. I want to be the okay. best surgeon that's out there. I actually spent last year at Johns Hopkins University. In what specific discipline of surgery? Orthopedic surgery okay. is one that I've always been interested in. And part of the reason why was when I was in college, um, I got an internship at Howard University Hospital in DC, worked with some amazing surgeons out there, got exposed to the field of orthopedics and just fell in love with it. But also even knowing that there's a lot of disparities that exist there. But I, I love science communication. I love kind of this work that I get to do as well online. I've gone to do it offline too through the World Health Organization, working with them on Operation FIDES, which was literally uh, about making sure accurate information's online. Um, but I also even see myself in politics one day. I do a lot of health policy work. I speak at the Congressional Black Caucus every single year. Um, I've worked with different <laughs> congressmen and senators on different projects. Sorry to mean the left. That's a, you're a pretty <laughs> remarkable guy. That's, that's, that's really great. But I always say you can't do everything all at once, but you can do everything. 
um, eventually. Yeah, you know, we talk about that a lot here at, at, at our own level. People that are very ambitious want to accomplish a bunch of things. And one of the things we talk about is there's really no substitute for actually just doing the stuff. Absolutely. It's hard to jumpstart everything and shortcut everything. And so your point about, you know, your journey, it, it seems like if you do have an experience being a surgeon and doing all that stuff, that will help inform all these other things that you exactly. can do later on as well. Exactly. Yeah, I find so much synergy in the work that I do online. And the, when I see a patient, I'll, I'll have made a video like last year about maybe um, biases in time differences and how women versus men are like released from the hospital. And so when I see someone that maybe presents with chest pain, that's a woman in a different way, I'm like, okay, well, let's make sure we get the, tr the troponins. Let's make sure we're getting that EKG, even if it could be something like a GERD, gastric reflux, really making sure that all the things that I'm doing online is translating into the real world. And I think it's informed a lot and made me a better just clin like future clinician and the way that I'm able to discern and think about things. So do you see yourself living in the Northwest? I mean, you've been around done different things. Or I, I'm still trying to decide where I want to live. I don't know. I think when I, I'm applying to residency next year and it'll be interesting because I will, wherever they take me, I want to go. <laughs> yeah. But I think uh, East Coast, I love, I love the Seattle area. Is your family still here? Yeah. All my family's here. They still okay. live up in, we live in Snohomish now. Okay. And I love this area. I think there's something so special about it. Yeah, I mean, I kind of selfishly feel like I should try to talk into sticking around here because <laughs> you could add a lot to our community. That's Absolutely. Great. Hey, Joel, look at I mean, we didn't know each other before this other than shaking hands at that event. Um, but I'm so glad I got a chance to meet you then and listen to you a little bit there. And like I said, I came back, I made a note of it. I said, we... We got to follow up with this guy. And I'm really glad we did. I mean, this is not, again, the typical stuff we talk about, but it's inspiring. And in, in its own way, it's got its sense of entrepreneurialism, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you've created something out of nothing for yourself. Yeah. And we talk about that a lot, about business and how that works. But, you know, here you are doing something that's outside the field of retail, but it's it's still so much about entrepreneurialism, really. Mm -hmm. So. I just want to say congratulations and, and thank you for, for being on the show. Thank you so much. And I want to say thank you to you because, like I said, I think it really got started with my realizing that things can be possible. When I applied for that Nordstrom scholarship, I ended up winning and it just opened so many doors for me. So well, thank that you. That makes me feel good that we could take any kind of credit for your success. No, absolutely. So Please great. do. <laughs> hey, thanks so much, Joel. Appreciate it. So our theme here today, one of the things that ties our different stories together is that we do have a scholarship fund that we have supported in multiple communities over a lot of years, and they come in different forms. And to round this out a little bit today, uh, we actually have Jakari Whitaker, who's uh, from Flint, Michigan, and attends school at Clark University in Atlanta uh, studying fashion design and philosophy with a minor in business. And it turns out that uh, Jakari has now won a Nordstrom scholarship twice as part of what our Nordstrom Made program is. And what that really means is we have a whole division here at Nordstrom that designs and produces stuff under our own label. And as such, we have partnered with the Fashion Scholarship Fund to offer some scholarships out there. So that's a long introduction for you, Jakari, but thanks so much for being on the podcast this morning. Thank you for having me. Okay, so 
I think maybe the best thing to do is just to start with giving us a little context about who you are, what you're doing, and how it came to be that, you know, in the first place that you applied for this scholarship. I'm a fashion designer, fashion design student slash fashion designer. I have my own company, Hikari no Yami, which is Japanese for finding the darkness and the light. How did you become interested in fashion? Is this something that was a bit of interest of yours since you were a kid? Or talk a little bit about growing up and how you came to have an interest in fashion. Well, it's kind of funny because I I never really grew up with the interest of fashion. During high school, I was actually um, very like into biology and microbiology. I was going to become an anesthesiologist once I graduated, but I wasn't really sure about my career path at the moment. So I took a gap year. During that time, I found out and discovered a designer by the name of Virgil Abloh who was doing something similar to what I had in mind, whereas um, he was an architect. I was studying to become a doctor. So in my mind, it was cool and crazy to see someone from such a different background do art and fashion design. And so like on a whim, I decided to switch my majors from pre-medicine and get into fashion design and philosophy. Hey, so when you were applying for this scholarship, was part of it that you had to turn in design and show what you've done or talk about what your design philosophy is? Or was it just more like filling out a form like, hey, here's who I am and, you know, here's my GPA? And Oh, not at all. I wish it was that easy. <laughs> it was actually um, a case study through Fashion Scholarship Fund we are um, asked to create these very in-depth, detailed case studies. It's about 23 slides. You choose a brand and then you choose how you could push this brand towards the future. And you delve into the research far as either making the brand sustainable, making the brand more equitable, and so the brands I've chosen through the past three years is um, Off-White, Comme des Garçons, and Yoji Yamamoto. All three of those brands having three of my favorite designers in them. I think the key lining um, thing that connects each of the brands is the aspect of a defiance against societal norms and expectations, which is another thing I placed inside my brand philosophy and my design philosophy was um, being outside the box and creating a new world based and centered around individualism and not copying or not following suit. Yeah, I think that's knowing those brands. I think that's absolutely right. And I don't know if you've listened to the podcast, but I interviewed Anna Wintour a while back and we got to talking about Virgil Abloh. And to me, He really stands out as a person in my career, you know, observing what's happening, the design side of stuff, because he completely broke the paradigm. Right. There was before that I was only aware of fashion designers that came up through a very similar course. They, you know, maybe to the big design school in New York or London or Paris or something like that. And they all a very similar background and a kind of a course. And then here was this guy. Virgil Abloh came along and I remember the the whole social economic part of where he came from and how it was so different from the status quo in, in designs. Was did was that appealing to you? I mean, when you saw Virgil Abloh and, you know, started to learn more about his work, 
How did that connect with you? That definitely was appealing and a big factor. Like I talked with the other um, Nordstrom scholars and Virgil scholars about this is um, Virgil's key underlying message of bringing more of us like people of color to the table in terms of like the fashion table, the fashion industry, it opened a lot of doors for people with different backgrounds to come in and kind of occupy these luxurious fashion spaces, which was very inspirational to me, uh, which was another reason why I probably latched myself to um, the ideology of Virgil Abloh as like a designer. I always get like a sense of um, I can like truly do this as a brand creator, as a designer who's putting out a different narrative into the world. And that's a uh, very reassuring. That's incredible. So talk about your vision and your goals. What do you, what do you, what do you hope to achieve here? I think the overall goal and dream is to be able to create without limitations or like expectations of anyone, just be able to create freely and like Virgil open the doors to um, other students behind me and help them climb the same exact ladder uh, with like the Nordstrom scholarship and the Virgil Blow scholarship and just build uh, that bridge of cultural connection, but also bring more seats to the table of like the fashion industry. That's great. Hey, well, Jakari, you're an impressive young man, and I appreciate that you took the time to share your story with us. And uh, it makes me feel good to know that our scholarship program is doing what it's intended to do. It's it's giving people like you an opportunity to learn and grow and uh, have an impact on our, our industry. So congratulations to you. And again, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Well, that's the show. We're really glad you're with us on this journey, and we hope you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to nordstrom.com slash nordypodcast, or follow us on our Instagram page, at the Nordy Pod, to stay up to date on new episodes, announcements, and more. We'd also really like to hear about your experience with Nordstrom. So if you have a story about how you've received great service or even bad service, send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com. You can even give us a call and leave a voicemail. And you may just get a chance to talk to me personally on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy. Drop us a line and be part of the Nordipod. And make sure to tune in next time when I sit down with founder and CEO of Harlem's Fashion Row, Brandis Daniel. I started going down department stores websites and realized that at the time, less than 1% of designers that were carried on department store websites were black designers. I didn't feel qualified to provide a solution because I didn't feel like I had the answers, but I knew that I couldn't leave that challenge unaddressed. Brandis has a really fascinating story. She's led a mission to challenge the current state of the fashion industry by bringing more designers of color to the runways and beyond. So join us next time on The Nordy Pod.